The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 5:17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, he pled on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Pam. Let me just start by commending you. Time change, sleet, and all of you are here at this hour. I'm just... You're my favorite. I just want to say that publicly. (laughs) Two months ago, Bruce Ritter, one of our elders at Redeemer, stood before a group of family and friends and told them a heartwarming story of reconciliation. Thirty years earlier, Bruce's dad had left his wife to live with another woman, and this betrayal split the family in two. Bruce's two sisters and his mom were no longer part of his dad's family. It's dad's life, really. They were estranged. And for three decades, there was little contact, little relationship apart from a periodic birthday card. But when Bruce heard that his dad's longtime girlfriend had been diagnosed with cancer, he reached out. And slowly, a relationship began to grow. And when Bruce and his two sisters attended the funeral of his father's girlfriend, that's really where the reconciliation began. And though the process was painful and the conversations were difficult. It continued right up until his father's death. And so when Bruce stood at his father's funeral and told the story of reconciliation, he explained how it was only the gospel of Jesus Christ that made it possible. The truth that Bruce, his mother, and his sisters had all been forgiven by God is what empowered them to forgive their father for his sins against the family. At that funeral, Bruce shared how reconciliation with God is at the heart of the gospel message. You see, Bruce understands his Bible. He understands the foundational truths that shape our world, that shape our outlook, that shape our future. Because of our sin, we are estranged from God, but God made a way for us to be reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And reconciliation with God changes everything. It changes how we handle heartbreak and betrayal. It changes how we view Other people, it changes how we understand the future that awaits us. It changes how we forgive and seek forgiveness. It changes how we value things in life. Nothing remains the same if we've been reconciled to God. Reconciliation with God produces a seismic shift, and the shockwaves touch every part of our lives. And this is what we're going to see this morning. Reconciliation with God is the heartbeat of a cross-shaped church. Every beat of Redeemer's heart should pulse with reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is not something we keep near us, but something that flows through us. It's not right at our fingertips, it's streaming through our veins. We do not understand the cross of Jesus. We cannot be shaped by the cross unless we understand how the cross reconciles us to God. So this morning as we continue to study the book of 2 Corinthians and learn what a cross-shaped church looks like, we're going to do a deep dive on reconciliation. We're going to attack this passage like a child with a frosted cupcake. We're going to start in the middle and work our way to the edges, okay? For us to truly understand reconciliation with God, we need to answer three questions. Here's the first one. Why do we need to be reconciled with God? Why do we need to be reconciled with God? And here the answer is found in the middle of this passage, right in the middle of verse 19. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So we have trespassed something, and this trespass, trespass is counted against us. What have we trespassed? Right, well, this question sends us back to the very beginning when God first created mankind and placed them in the Garden of Eden. He gave them everything they needed, not just to survive, but to thrive. The world was theirs to cultivate and enjoy, but God gave them one inviolable law. They were not to eat of a certain tree in the middle of the garden. This one law was for their good, and God's command was clear, but in a moment of temptation, They were not content to stay within the joy-filled, protective confines of God's law. And so they brazenly stepped over it, disregarding the boundary he established for the protection. And in their moment of foolishness, their trespass brought deadly consequences. Because of their sin, they were banished from the garden. They were alienated from God. Their disregard for his authority and his command brought division and estrangement. And from that point forward, human history is a bit like that Netflix setting that starts playing another episode as soon as the current one ends, right? They suck you in one more episode. Well, Adam and Eve in the first episode violate God's command. The next episode, Cain kills Abel. Just a few episodes later, the whole earth is corrupt, so corrupt that God sends a flood to judge humanity for their unbridled rebellion. And as you flip through the pages of the Old Testament, you find episode after episode, and each one has the same plot, each one ends the same way, humanity trespassing God's law. Well, the Apostle Paul summarizes this teaching of the Old Testament in the letter he writes to the Romans. Think of this like the recap at the start of a new episode. Paul basically begins his letter to the Romans by saying, previously in world history... In chapter 1, he shows how Gentiles or non-Jews, with their disregard and ignorance of God, have violated God's law. Then in chapter 2, he focuses on the Jewish people and shows how they too have trespassed God's law, even while they immerse themselves in it. And this leads to his famous conclusion in chapter 3, where he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Every single one of us have trespassed God's law. We have ignored the boundaries he has set up for our good and rebelled against his authority over us. Our actions have cut us off from God. God did nothing to cause 
our estrangement. God didn't fail us in any way. He didn't break a promise or act in bad faith. God only did good. The responsibility of our estrangement from God falls completely on us. And do you realize that your actions, that your choices, that your desires have cut you off from God? So you can never truly understand the Christian message until you understand that you are liable for your rebellion. God's law is summarized with two commands. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you were to look at the record of your life, you will find repeated violations of both commands. And so reconciliation with God is necessary because each of us stand guilty before God because we have violated his law. This leads to our second question. How does reconciliation with God happen? Look at verse 18. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So reconciliation begins with God taking the initiative. The one who was sinned against, the one whose law was violated, makes the first move. He pursues the offending party, which is us, and he begins the work of reconciliation. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you robbed a bank. Hopefully this takes a lot of imagination. You robbed a bank. If this is too easy for you, we should probably talk. I was already thinking about this this week. No, you robbed a bank, you jumped in the getaway car, and you took off, and all of a sudden, like, sirens start behind you, the lights are flashing, the police are chasing you down, and you violate every possible traffic law trying to get away from them, and finally, for some reason, you end up on the side of the road, unable to go any further. And an officer appears, and he walks up to your open window, and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you think, <laughs> I mean, it could be for speeding, or running red lights, or driving recklessly, or avoiding arrest, or robbing a bank. But before you answer, he says, I pulled you over because the bank owner wanted you to know you're forgiven. He won't press charges. See, God pursues rebels with grace. God chases after lawbreakers with mercy. Now, God doesn't ignore our trespasses, right? He doesn't pretend injustice never happened, but he deals with our law-breaking in a permanent, miraculous way. Look at verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In what is often called the great exchange, Jesus took our sin with all the consequences of it on himself and he gave us the righteousness that belongs to him. This is what happened on the cross. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, became sin so that we might become righteous. Everything that rightfully belonged to us, which was sin and judgment and condemnation and death, Jesus took on himself. So that everything that rightfully belonged to him, which is righteousness and acceptance and pardon and life, could be given to us. But notice that we don't just look righteous. Verse 21 says, we become righteous. 
So righteousness is not an activity we perform, it's a state of being. This is the difference between an actress who pretends to get married in a movie and an actress who actually gets married. Right? When she stands before the, the judge or stands before the minister and she recites those vows, her state of being changes. She becomes married. She doesn't just look married. She just doesn't just identify as being married. She becomes married. So in a miraculous, mind-blowing way, when Jesus went to the cross, he becomes sin. Our sin was placed on him in such a way that God could judge our sin, our past sin, our current sin, our future sin, fully and decisively in one act of judgment. And at the very same time, the righteousness of God was given to us in such a degree that we have become righteous. And even though we still sin, we're no longer defined by our sin, we're no longer guilty because of our sin, when we sin now, it stands in contrast to who we are. There's an unnatural act when Christians sin because we have been made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I like how John Piper summarizes reconciliation with God. Through Jesus, he says, when the Son of God died for our sins, he absorbed into himself, as he died, all of the enmity that God had against his people. And so the death of Christ is the objective, historical, unchangeable, rock-solid foundation of our reconciliation with God. Now, I want you to notice what's missing from reconciliation. Did you, did you see anything missing? Here, here's what's missing Anything we do, anything we offer, anything we accomplish, verse 18, we are reconciled to God through Christ. Not through good works, not through religious zeal, not through keeping the Ten Commandments, not through trying harder, not through getting baptized, not through going to church, not through being a good person. Reconciliation with God comes only through Jesus Christ. And so our responsibility is to receive the grace he offers. That's what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. We receive his grace. Reconciliation is a gift that must be accepted. God does all the work, and he offers it to us free of charge, but we must accept it. Accepting it requires us to acknowledge our guilt before him, to admit that we need him to fix what our actions have broken, but we accept this gift in faith, trusting that the work of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sin. I mean, friend, have you ever accepted the grace that God offers through Christ? I hope you wouldn't leave today without understanding that this is what we sing about and what we celebrate. This is at the heart of who we are, and really it's at the heart of our world, is reconciliation with God. Have you been reconciled with God? So why do we need to be reconciled with God? Because we have violated his law. How does reconciliation with God happen? Through Jesus Christ alone. One more question. What are the effects of reconciliation with God? Now there are a long list. We're just going to look at two of them. Look with me at verse 16. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. 
Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we now no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Here's the first effect. We are a new creation. The righteousness of God changed us from the inside out. We're brand new. We've been raised from the dead with Jesus to walk in newness of life. Everything is new, including the way we view people. I mean, that's the point Paul is making in verse 16. We don't judge, we don't see people the same way now as we did before we were reconciled with God. In the past, we evaluated people from a worldly perspective. We were the same as all the other American Idol judges. We evaluated people by how they looked, how they sounded, and what we thought they could accomplish. Our view of beauty is shaped by the culture. And so we idolized people who had a certain image, whether that image was glamorous or powerful. In fact, we evaluated people the same way Paul and the Pharisees evaluated Jesus. At first they judged him as a good teacher, but over time they grew to dislike him because he didn't affirm the way they did things. So many people in that time viewed Jesus from a worldly perspective. They asked how he might benefit their lives and increase their comfort. Would he rescue them from Roman oppression? Would he make them feel superior to the Gentiles? They compared him with other teachers. They evaluated him that way. But here's, here's the beauty of this message. Those of us who've been reconciled with God, we now see Jesus differently. We actually see Jesus for who he truly is. We see his glory, and we're awed by his marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. We're learning more each day about his compassion and care as he comes and he meets us in our needs. We see his power and his beauty, his transcendence. We've, we even find Depths of joy and gladness in Jesus we did not know existed. We don't see him as a good teacher, a good example. We see him as God. We see him as worthy of our love and worthy of our lives. Like Copernicus, who first realized that the sun is at the center of the solar system, we realize that Jesus is at the very center of all things, that our lives were made to revolve around him, not the other way around. Not only is our way of seeing new, but everything is new. It says we're a new creation, verse 17. We have new eyes to see Jesus, a new heart to love him and others, a new nature of righteousness, a new identity as sons of God, a new destiny with God in a new heaven and new earth. We have new desires to please him instead of ourselves, a new family of brothers and sisters, and a new purpose for life. We speak in a new way, we think in a new way, and we act in a new way. You see, when God reconciles himself to us, we don't turn over a new leaf. It's more like we're part of a new forest that's sprouting up in what used to be a desert. The new has come, and the old has passed away. Do you realize that? If you're a Christian, you no longer need to be stuck in old ways of living. Like you're no longer imprisoned by past mistakes. Your failures don't define you. Do you believe that? I think there are many of us in this room who struggle 
to move on from sins in our past. We still feel the shame that came from sinful decisions and we can't seem to shake it. And maybe deep down we don't feel worthy enough to shake it. We think we deserve the feelings of shame as penance for the choices we made. But if God doesn't define us by our past sin, and if Jesus died for those sins, is it right for us to hold on to them? Is it right for us to hold on to past guilt? See, if your sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross, you're a new creation whether you feel like it or not. If tomorrow you wake up and you don't feel like a human, but you feel like a canine, it doesn't change the truth about who you are. Even if you crawl around on all fours in your backyard and howl at the moon, right? That's weird because you're not a dog. You're a human. I don't care if you say, I really feel like a dog. I say, I don't care. It's weird. Stand up. Stop howling. You're a human. That is true whether you feel like it or not. Christian, you may not feel like a new creation, especially since you're still in this old tent that's wearing out. But God says you are a new creation in spite of your feelings. You can start living like a new creation. You are not bound to your old way of life. So is there a way of living you need to reject? An old way. Because you're a new creation. Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died to reconcile you to God. Do you live out that reality? Or are you still living as if you're cut off from him? Are you still living as if your sin is what defines you? If your sin controls you? The effect of reconciliation is that we are a new creation. The second effect, we are ambassadors for Christ. So because we're a new creation, we have a new homeland. We come from a new kingdom with new customs and laws. Our allegiance is to a new king. And this new king has given us a special role to serve as his ambassadors in this world. Look at verse 20. Therefore, Based upon all that God has done through Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, we are no longer natives here. And so we cannot live and talk and love the same way as those who find this world to be their home. For us to be faithful ambassadors for Christ, we cannot be completely conformed to this world. Do you understand what I'm saying? That part of our calling as ambassadors is to be distinct. That we need to be distinct in the way we view people. This is what we talked about earlier, really. This is what Paul talks a lot about in this letter. That people have value not for what they do for us, but because they're made in the image of God, and so we don't misuse or abuse them, but we serve them in love. Do you realize people are going to judge Jesus and his kingdom based upon their observations of us? Just think about this. If you were chosen as a United States ambassador to a people far away from here, it's a people primitive, without access to the internet and television, what 
will they know about America? Only what they see and hear in you. And so as they see you walk through the village center, they'll say, huh, that's how Americans walk. And as they see you smile at a small child, they say, oh, Americans must be all kind to children. They see you get angry at your spouse and they wonder, are all Americans selfish and short-tempered? Everything they learn about America comes from watching you. People in our community know little to nothing about Jesus and his kingdom. How will they learn what Jesus is like? From watching us. We are living advertisements for Jesus. We are breathing billboards for the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you think you're not qualified to be an ambassador. Like surely there's some specialized training. No. The only prerequisite for serving as an ambassador is being reconciled to God through Jesus. That's the whole list. It's one thing long. Have you been reconciled to God? Yes? Then you're hired. Right? You are now an ambassador for him the power and ability to serve as ambassadors comes from his righteousness in us, verse 21, not a degree we earn. As ambassadors, here's what we're called to do. Here's our job. We've been given, verse 18 says, the ministry of reconciliation. So we're to bring Christ's message of reconciliation with us everywhere we go. So this is certainly what we do as a church each week when we gather in this little embassy of heaven. We sing about Christ's work of reconciliation. We proclaim it from the scriptures. We celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. This weekly reminder helps us then go out into a foreign land to serve as ambassadors. We do this throughout the week with those around us who are still estranged from God. Right? We tell them about Jesus. We call them to be reconciled with God. But the scope of our ministry is not limited to Sunday at church or individual conversations with non-Christians. We seek to bring Christ's reconciliation wherever we find strife and division. So maybe we notice a marriage that is struggling. So as ministers of reconciliation, what we do is we start to think and pray about how we might be able to help. Lord, is there a way that you could use me to bring reconciliation into this relationship? Maybe there's a parent and child that are really, really struggling, and we know it. And so we go, okay, Lord, is there a way I can come alongside? Is there a way I can help? Can I minister here in this conflict to bring healing? We notice the racial division in our community, and we consider, Lord, what part could I play and that reconciliation? What about the division between rich and poor, between citizen and immigrant, between men and women? We ask God, how, how can I bring reconciliation to those who, who, are, who act like enemies because of their political views? Right? Nothing is out of bounds. No area off limits. As ministers of reconciliation, we seek to bring reconciliation anywhere we see conflict. Of course, we cannot be faithful ambassadors bringing reconciliation if we can't get along ourselves. So I ask you right now, is there a relationship you know is broken? Are, are you living in conflict with someone, unresolved conflict? How, how effective can you be 
as a minister of reconciliation if you won't first pursue reconciliation with those that you are divided from? Right now, God has given us a wonderful spirit of unity at Redeemer that has lasted for almost 15 years. Do we take this for granted? We're told to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit being bound together with peace. Like that doesn't happen by chance. What it means is that we each have this responsibility for reconciliation. This doesn't happen if we're easily offended. Are you easily offended? Do you have thin skin? Do you assume the worst whenever anyone says anything? It also doesn't happen if we're unthinking and indifferent to other people's feelings. They just need to get over it. They need to deal with it. It's their problem. It won't happen if we're focused on our own comfort, our own goals. It requires us reaching out in personal ministry to others. It requires us to take our membership covenant seriously, which says that we will walk with one another in an affectionate love and care. It will notice others. See, reconciliation and unity comes when we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. See, a ministry of reconciliation is not accomplished by paying a pastor to stand up front and preach about reconciliation. It's accomplished when members like Bruce enter conflict, painful conflict, with kindness and humility and are quick to forgive. When we each realize that no sin committed against me is worse than the sin I committed against God and he still forgave me. As ambassadors of Christ, we are ministers of reconciliation and we're given a message of reconciliation. See, an ambassador doesn't write his own material. He doesn't get to turn his preferences into policy. He's given the responsibility to speak on the king's behalf, so he's careful to only say what the king tells him to say. So what is the message the king wants us to deliver? Verse 20, be reconciled to God. That's it. On behalf of Jesus, we plead with others to be reconciled to God. Now, that's short, but that's a remarkable message. Usually what happens, right, is the the weak country... The country that's about to be be overrun, they send a message to the mighty king of the dominant nation and they plead with him, show us mercy. Like that's how things are supposed to work. Not the other way around. But Jesus, the offended and aggrieved party, he pursues rebels and he pleads with them to accept his mercy. Jesus doesn't plead because he's weak and we're powerful. He pleads because his love is so great and our sin is so consuming. He pleads because he does not need us to validate him. His love is so mighty, his love is so powerful that he can stoop low to rescue sinners. The message of reconciliation is not long or elaborate. You don't have to memorize pages of text. You don't need a PhD to understand it. In English, it's just four words. Be reconciled to God. And since we've been reconciled to God, we don't need to figure out clever ways to package the message. We just talk 
about what Jesus has done in us. We're like a flute. The Spirit of God breathes in us and out comes the music of reconciliation. All of this is from God. And here's, here's some really wonderful news. We're not left on our own to do this work. Look at how chapter 6 begins, verse 1. Working together with him. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Our message is simple but urgent. The Apostle Paul here calls those in the church who receive this letter to make sure they're not listening to this message of reconciliation, but failing to respond. He's warning those who sit in the church each week, hearing the truth, don't fail to receive it yourself. It's possible to have God's grace presented to you, but then to walk away empty. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah to impress upon those listening that now is the time of salvation. Jesus has come. The day of salvation is here. Don't wait. Don't put it on a list to do when you get older. Now is the time to respond to the message of reconciliation. I don't know if you realize this, but this past week has been severe weather preparedness week. Seems appropriate that we end that week with sleet or whatever that was out there. So what this is, Severe Weather Preparedness Week, it's something the National Weather Service does in an attempt to make sure that we all stay safe when severe weather strikes. So basically what they do is they warn us about severe weather. So one of the things they do is they give us statistics. Did you realize, for instance, that lightning strikes the United States 25 million times a year and it kills on average 47 people? So they tell us that, warning us, like, be prepared. They come up with mottos. Here's one. When thunder roars, go indoors. Okay? Or turn around, don't drown. This is how they warn us. They, they want us to be prepared, to know what to do, to, to, to make plans, to have supplies ready. They also do this. They, they tell weathermen. This is how I learned about it. Our own Tom Miners is a weatherman. He said, I'm going on TV all this week, and I'm talking about severe weather informing people. And all of this is done with one goal. It's not TV ratings. It's the second goal. It's to keep us safe. You know, in the same way that God has given each one of us a job to do, we're given a message, an urgent message. We're told to share it. We don't need statistics or catchy slogans, but we do need to speak up. We are ambassadors for Christ. And the way he warns and pleads is through us. Now, we're not warning our friends and neighbors about possible destruction sometime in the future, but a much bigger, more urgent crisis right now, more than they need water and shelter, they need to be reconciled with God. So it's our responsibility, both individually and as a church, to tell them. So let's commit to speak up with greater boldness this week. Let's commit to enter brokenness as ministers of reconciliation. Will you pray with me?
Father, help us, please, to be faithful ambassadors for you. Lord, we're so grateful that you have reconciled us with you. Lord, not, not because of anything we did. It was through Christ and him alone that our sin brought division and estrangement, but yet you pursued us through Christ. You have brought us back to yourself. You have reconciled us with you. We are new creations who no longer need to live like we're cut off from you, no longer need to live bound by our sin. Help us to live out the righteousness Christ gave us and help us to be motivated by Christ's reconciliation that we will go this week into this world, into our own homes. We start there and we bring reconciliation into our neighborhoods, into our workplace, into our community. Lord, help us to be faithful, bold, and the message you've given us, be reconciled to God. Lord, we need your help. Thank you that you work with us. Thank you that your spirit empowers us. Help us to be faithful ambassadors this week. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.